2: You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good
3: afternoon. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Hey, Ken, And today we have a special guest on the show. He's well, estate planning expert. That's right. Last uh, couple of weeks ago, we were talking about some estate planning topics. We thought it'd be great to have her come in and uh, share some insight with us on that. Yeah, I actually speak to an actual expert on the topic. Exactly. And uh, for those of you who are new to Empirical Investing Radio, the show is designed to share with you prudent investment and financial planning ideas, to help you make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions. Nathan, if you wouldn't mind sharing our contact information and what we do and how we help people, that would be great.
4: Sure thing. This is a live broadcast today. Um, if you'd like to join the show, feel free to give us a call or, or shoot us an email. You can, we can be reached at 866-472-5790 or via email at contact at um, If you'd like to reach us and discuss perhaps your situation, um, maybe you're looking toward retirement or like a second opinion in your portfolio, feel free to call us at the uh, Empirical Towers here in beautiful downtown Seattle at 206-923-3474 and ask for Ken or Ethan. Sounds good, Ethan. Yeah. Um,
3: Okay, well, why don't you introduce our guest and we'll get right into (laughs) the estate planning topic.
4: Sounds good. Uh, So, Sarah, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Nice to have you here. I appreciate you taking the time to to share with us.
0: I'm happy to be here.
4: Um, Sarah works for uh, uh, K&L Gates in the beautiful downtown Seattle, and you've been there for about a year or so. But I thought, before we begin, begin the in the, the questions and so forth, you can tell us just a little bit about your your background and, and where you're from.
0: Sure, I grew up in Seattle. I'm a local from here, and have been practicing estate planning law and estate interest administration law for about seven years here in Seattle. I graduated from Seattle University School of Law in 2006.
4: And I understand you were you were second or third in your class.
0: I was number one in my number class.
4: Number one. Wow. <laughs> all right, that's excellent. We only go to the best. You think? <laughs> well, that's pretty exciting. Thank you. Um, all right. Well, um, you know, with with all the changes here recently, obviously we've have had uh, some some really momentous changes here in the estate uh, planning world in the last few months. Uh, coming into the new year. Um, I thought we can get to that in a little bit, but I'd like to maybe, if you don't mind, take a, take us through the last maybe 10 years of estate planning, what's been going on. Give us a little background for our, our conversation today.
0: Sure. The estate planning laws federally have been in flux since 2001, and we are at a point here in 2013 where, for the very first time, they're somewhat static, at least for the near future. Mm-hmm. But back in 2001, there were laws put into place that were set to expire in 2010, and no one in the legal community nationally really thought that they would actually expire. They thought that Congress would act sometime between 2001 and 2010 to make the laws permanent. Um, effectively, there were different estate tax exemptions each year or every couple of years from 2001 and 2010 um, with that estate tax exemption increasing over the years. Um, and an estate tax exemption is the amount of money that a person can pass to their family and friends at death without paying a tax to the federal government. And that's separate from a state estate tax, which some states have, including Mm -hmm. our state here in Washington. So in 2009, the federal estate tax exemption was 3.5 million. So every person could pass that amount of money to their family free of tax to the federal government. In 2010, the law actually did expire and sunset And there was no federal estate tax for the year of 2010 at all. So there were some pretty high net worth people who passed away and passed a fair amount of money with no tax to the government. Wow. Late in December of 2010, Congress passed some laws that made your law for 2010 optional. And you basically got to pick between one of two laws to apply if you died that year. Your family got to pick. Mm of Whether you wanted a $5 million estate tax exemption or no estate tax exemption, and there were some other tax consequences as to why you would pick which one. I see. And then we fast forward to 2011, where 2011 and 2012, Congress put in another temporary law for two years to expire at the end of 2012, and it did actually expire for there a couple days. Uh, and we had uh, some estate tax in place. But in 2013, on January 2nd, the Congress put into law a five million dollar estate tax exemption permanent with inflation moving forward. So right now, today, you can pass $5.25 million free of federal estate tax at your death.
4: Wow. So it took them about, what, 13 years to actually get something permanent on the books, basically? Yes. Which is a tremendous (laughs) amount of time. So for that period of time, it sounds like it created a lot of uncertainty for most folks, at least in terms of estate planning. How did that affect your practice over that period of time?
0: It's been very uncertain, and what it's meant is that people have had to be more on top of their estate plans, especially if they were in a higher net worth bracket, Mm -hmm. Um, and that bracket really meaning anybody worth close to a million dollars or more, because the the values of estate tax exemptions have fluctuated from one million to five million back and forth over those years. So if you fell anywhere close to that, including if that's what your house was worth, if you had a life insurance policy that was worth a million dollars, any of those things would kick you over that line it meant a lot of people changed their estate plans quite a few times or at least had to be cognizant of what the law was doing. They couldn't just do their estate plan, shove it in a drawer, and consider it done. Right. Right.
4: Hey, one thing that uh, we Ken and I were talking about um, a couple weeks ago on the show, and maybe you can clarify for us, was what actually is included in your gross estate. Sure. We had talked about, uh, I think it was Ken, you asking the question about uh, is, is, is debt included in gross estate or how does that us all work together?
0: So your gross estate for estate tax purposes is, which is what it's important for when you're, if you have to file a federal estate tax return or a state estate tax return is your net worth. So everything that you own minus your debt. Okay. Um, so the equity in your home, your bank accounts, your retirement accounts, IRAs, 401ks, life insurance, death benefit proceeds for life insurance count. So if you have a, Negative net worth, but you have a big life insurance policy. You potentially could have a taxable estate.
4: Okay, excellent, excellent. So you mentioned that the uh, the current exemption levels are five point two five million, right now. Federally correct. Federally for for two thousand and thirteen. Uh, what other changes came this with the advent of the new state law changes?
0: So there's this thing called portability, which is kind of cool, which was around for a couple of years in 2011 and 12, but we weren't sure if it was going to be permanent. Mm -hmm. So technically it's now part of this new permanent law. And what that means is if you are a married couple, and only if you're a married couple, if one of the spouses dies, they can give their $5.25 million federal estate tax exemption to their spouse. So the spouse has, can then have a ten and a half million dollar estate tax exemption to use at his or her death. Whereas before, if spouse one didn't use their exemption, and we can talk about how you actually go about using it, then you'd lose it. So it was use it or lose it. And it, there are still special things you have to do when someone dies to use it or save it for the future. It's not automatic. And there's a process. You basically have to file a federal 706 estate tax return to elect to use that portability. Um, so if you don't do that within a timely period, and there's mm. definitely cost and time to do that, uh, then you can miss it.
4: I see. So it's, why isn't it? Why do you think it isn't automatic? Why would they make it? They have to elect it that.
0: Well, there's a lot of special rules to it. I think they want to track it for one. Mm. Um, and there's special rules too. To if you then go out and get remarried to somebody else, then you may not be able to use your prior deceased spouse's exemption.
4: All right. And that kind of leads me to my next question. Maybe we can give an example of, of why, it's, why this portability thing is important to begin with. Why is it such a dramatic change from what happened before?
0: Well, it's a dramatic change from what happened before. So let's take let's say you're a married couple and you're worth $10 million, and you don't do any estate $10 million together, and you don't do any estate planning. Husband dies first. His $5 million passes to his wife. There's no tax due, no tax is actually paid upon the first spouse's death because there's a marital deduction. Mm-hmm. Um, but now the second spouse is worth $10 million and not $5. let us say the wife goes out and dies the very next day. She only has a $5 million exemption. All of a sudden she has about half of the other $5 million that's paid to the government. You're paying about $2.5 million in taxes. Whereas okay. if you had used the portability, there would be zero tax due upon her death. And likewise, if they'd done tax planning in their estate plan prior to this new law, there would have been zero estate tax due. So you can literally, if you fall into those brackets, while it's a small amount of people percentage-wise in the country that fall into those high net worth brackets, if you do fall into it, you can literally save hundreds of thousands, if not millions, by doing tax planning that can only be done in your estate plan.
3: Wow. So if I understand that correctly, Sarah, what was going on before is if someone didn't have an estate plan, they really didn't have a choice. They automatically went to the spouse tax-free if they didn't do proper planning in advance. Now, they now, if they didn't have a plan, at least they have the option. They still have to do something, but now they're doing it upon the death of the first spouse to say, yeah, hey, I want to take advantage of this portability Correct. opportunity.
0: Correct. And generally speaking, there are different state laws. State law is what governs what happens to your assets if you don't have an estate plan, a written estate plan in place. And so under Washington law, it would be all of your community property passes to your surviving spouse and your separate property would be shared between your children and your spouse or some other method. So other states outside of Washington may have different regulations. But as a general rule, stuff may pass to your surviving spouse. But it's a good point to bring up because it's not necessarily the case, especially if you're on a second marriage, which a lot of people are, or children from a different relationship. It's really important to make sure you have your will and other estate planning documents in place or your assets very likely could pass somewhere where you don't want them to.
3: I see. Um, could you speak a little bit about the, um, the difference between the federal state, tax and each individual state, or sort of Washington specifically? Sure. Um,
0: <clears throat> Excuse me. So there are several states in the country that have state tax laws that are separate and apart from the federal government. Washington is one of those states. So here in Washington... Every person who has more than 2 million dollars to his or her name when they die pays between 10 and 19% of that excess to the Washington Department of Revenue upon death. In addition to that, they still have that 5.25 million to contend with. So it's very possible if someone's worth between 2 and 5.25 million that they would pay their estate would pay money to the Washington Department of Revenue upon death, but not the federal government, or if they're worth more than that 5 million figure they're going to pay to both. So it's important to know what your state has. Not every state has an estate tax exemption, but several of them do, and you want to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the portability you brought up earlier for federal law does not apply to state law. So okay. if you die in Washington and you're worth $10 million, you may be able to port your first spouse's federal estate tax exemption, but not the state estate tax exemption.
4: Wow, okay. So in, in, in earlier like several years ago, before the most recent tax law change then, um, how, how did a couple utilize both persons' exemptions? What was the most common method for that?
0: So the most common method for doing that is in your will and or a revocable trust, both of which are, are effective upon your death. And you do that with a credit trust or a bypass trust. People have different phrasing for them, but essentially you set up a trust that some assets are going to pass into upon the first spouse's death that is protected and essentially saves your estate tax exemption. Mm-hmm. And the surviving spouse still has complete access to those funds, can use it for his or her benefit, can be the trustee and have control over those accounts. Um, administratively, you just have to set up a new bank account or maybe do a deed to your house or retitle some assets, but the surviving spouse can still have them. They're not taken away. They're not given to anybody else. And that allows for those assets to pass estate tax-free upon the surviving spouse's death. And that's something that we still do. It's still a very, very active part of planning today, despite the changes in the law, especially given the differences between state and federal law in most places.
4: Is that the main reason why they're, they're still likely to be used, the, the bypass trust arrangement? Is it because of these, the difference the between the, the federal and the state of, uh, state tax levels, or is it something else that goes on there?
0: It's both. I mean, certainly tax planning is a big part of it, but first and foremost, estate planning is about family planning and how you want your assets to pass at your death. And by putting it into a trust scenario, you can lock into place how your estate passes. And that's really important to people who are younger. And if they think they might die soon, their surviving spouse might remarry or to people who are already on second marriages.
4: Okay, great, great. Well, we're we're coming up on our first break here. Um, We'll take a break and come right back.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks
4: for joining us. We'll be right back.
2: Business community's First choice in internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network.
5: Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, portfolio manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com
2: You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan.
4: All right, we're back on uh, Empirical Investing Radio, your host here, Ethan Broga. Alongside Ken Smith and our special guest uh, Sarah Bowman from K&L Gates here in, in downtown Seattle, um, Sarah. Right before the break, we're just talking about the uh, the idea between uh, state taxes between the Washington state estate tax and the federal tax exemption. And I wanted to be maybe we can talk a little bit more about how are the the bypass trusts arrangements still useful in this particular situation given where we are with the federal state tax levels.
0: Sure. So if you take a couple, husband and wife, that's married and that they're worth a total of $4 million together, they're they are not going to have a federal estate tax. Neither one of them will. They could die and pass everything to the survivor and still have the survivor exempt from federal estate taxes. So that's just not an issue for them. Mm-hmm. But Washington state estate taxes will be an issue for them. If they do not do tax planning, and let's say husband dies first and he passes his $2 million to his wife, then the next day, she's worth $4 million now. She's not worth $2 million anymore. Mm-hmm. And let's say she goes out and gets hit by a bus, and she dies with a $4 million estate. All of a sudden, she has between two and $300,000 of estate tax paid to the Department of Revenue from her estate.
4: Right.
0: If they had come in and done estate planning, and we had done some pretty simple measures in their trust, then we could have set it up so that the husband, who's the first spouse to die, had saved his $2 million Washington estate tax exemption so that when the wife died, she's still only worth 2000000 million. I'm assuming there's no change in value between deaths here mm-hmm. for simplicity purposes. And then when she died, there would be zero estate tax due. So they would essentially save several hundred thousand dollars by doing some pretty simple planning measures in their will. Wow.
4: And so uh, one thing you mentioned earlier, too, is that uh, the federal exemption adjusts for inflation, right? There's an inflation adjustment on that? Correct. And is, what about the Washington state? state
0: there's currently not a, an inflation adjustment. There's no inflation adjustment, there's no portability. It is a flat two million dollar rate per person.
4: Wow. Okay. So some dramatic differences there. Yes. And for folks that that affects will be will mean significant tax dollars potentially lost if not handled properly.
0: Correct. And Washington, another difference too, is that it's a sliding scale. So the Washington estate taxes between ten and nineteen percent. The more money you have, the more money they're gonna take. Whereas the federal rate is a flat forty percent.
4: I see.
3: I have a question, sir. We were talking about uh, 2010 being the single year where there was a zero estate tax, right? Correct. And I was reading that George Steinbrenner, the owner of uh, famed owner of the New York Yankees, died in 2010, and he had a 1.1 billion dollar estate. Yeah.
0: Um,
3: but they were saying, hey, on the flip side of that, there was no step up in basis, um, so he bought the organization for something like 10 million dollars. Um, so, you'd have a huge, whoever inherited it would have a huge capital gains tax. Could you explain a little how that works with the step up in all of this? Because that's something we haven't talked about. Yeah, that's excellent. Um,
0: sure.
3: W- what happens to these uh, very um, appreciated assets in a person's estate?
0: Sure. So, the basis is what equates to how much capital gain tax you're going to pay. So, your basis is whatever you bought an asset for, or whatever you acquired it for. Somebody gifts something to you, then you take their basis, sometimes called carryover basis. So in 2010, we talked a little bit earlier about how at the end of the year you had a choice of law. You could, ultimately, there was no federal estate tax and you could choose to have that and take no step up in basis, or you could choose to have a $5 million estate tax exemption but get a step up in basis. So you had to do it. It was purely a math calculation depending on what the basis was and what the estate was valued at, which was better. Did you pay more dollars in capital gains tax or did you pay more dollars in estate tax? I believe, but I'm not certain for that Steinbrenner estate that they chose to have no estate tax and chose the capital gains tax. Um, but it's just a purely calculation under current law. You get the five million. There still is a step up in basis attribute to it. So effectively, if your spouse or your parents die and they had some stock that they bought lots of years ago at a very low cost and it has appreciated a ton, then you get a step-up in basis. If you turned around and sold it the next day, you'd have no capital gains tax.
3: So that's where we're at in this. That's that's
0: where we're at in it. And with
3: regard to the state, Washington state, um, do they treat it the same way since we don't really have an income tax typically? We don't pay capital gains taxes in Washington, right?
0: Essentially. So Washington is a community property state, which is different than some other states meaning that the presumption of a husband and wife is that everything you own is community, it's yours, it's 50-50 down the middle. You can have separate property, which has some different rules, but you have to do some special things to make things separate, meaning it only belongs to one spouse. So in a community property state here in Washington, when one spouse dies, there's a step-up in basis to the entire community. So if husband and wife bought a house 20 years ago for $100,000 and now the house is worth $800,000, the husband dies, the entire basis steps up to eight hundred thousand. So if the wife turns around and sells it, she doesn't have to pay any capital gains tax. And likewise, if they both die and pass it to their kids, there's another step-up in basis when the wife dies.
3: Okay. All right. Interesting. So it wasn't a completely free lunch when um, that estate tax went to zero for people who had appreciated assets
0: no but the the capital gains tax is about a third of what the estate tax was so okay. it was still a
3: a pretty hefty a
0: pretty hefty difference and it and for some people not everybody has low cost basis assets depending on what you have you know some of your investments don't have much capital gain exposure or your real property it just depended that was a very individual thing
3: mm-hmm. So theoretically, if you chose, and I know we're getting probably a little bit farther out of the conversation we need to be, but if you chose, uh, in this case, to um, not take the step-up in basis, and then later, because tax rates are definitely being debated constantly, and I think in 2013, capital gains tax rates are already going up, but let's say they ever switched them to ordinary income tax rates, and then the higher brackets on income tax was in the forty plus percent, theoretically you could be in that situation where you're paying a pretty high chunk.
0: Theoretically. Because
3: you know, you're you're making a bet on what will happen to future capital gains tax rates as well, unless you sold the property right away.
0: True. So yeah. when you when you take a property, whether you, you get a basis for it, and whatever that basis is is what you keep moving forward, and then you're gonna pay whatever the capital gains tax law is in place at the time you sell it, that's what you have to pay. Okay.
4: Uh, in terms of uh, any, any other large or material things come out of the estate tax law that recently was passed, we talked about, I think primarily the exemption amounts and also this idea of portability. What else came about from that legislation that's worthy of note maybe in this conversation today, you think?
0: You know, there were a lot of income tax changes, but I think that's beyond the estate planning measures. I mean, I think you've hit on the, the main ones there. Okay. I mean, the most important thing is for people is the federal estate tax exemptions, um, You know, getting the capital gains tax rate a little bit more consistent and having a technically permanent law in place has been important to a lot of people. Now, there was a lot of talk at the end of last year where a lot of estate planning attorneys nationwide and trust officers and banks were running around trying to do a lot of gifting Mm -hmm. from parents to kids or other family and friends to take advantage of that $5 million exemption because they were worried it was going to go away. And it didn't, ultimately. So the people who didn't do those gifts still have opportunity but I think it's a now is a really great time because people can step back and take a deep breath and really think about what kind of planning they want to do rather than rush into something just because there's a self-imposed deadline.
4: Mm-hmm. So primarily we've talked here about about estate taxes in terms of that's the part of the estate planning component we've been focusing on so far. But what, what else is involved in, in um, getting a sound estate plan?
0: Sure. There's a lot of components. And in my opinion, the more important components are the family components. You know, everybody's going to die. That's the hard truth. And Mm -hmm. usually I'm the last person somebody wants to call because nobody's planning on dying or getting (laughs) sick or disabled and nobody wants to deal with it. But it's really important to deal with and how you want your assets to pass to your family, to your spouse, to your kids, to charity is really important to put pen to paper. And if you don't do it, the law, state law has a backup plan for you. And I would say 99.9% of the people I have met with, my clients, that backup plan is not what they have wanted. So we have put, you can change it to do whatever you want. You've just got to actually do it mm-hmm. and put it in place. So it's just making sure your assets go where you want to and doing good, sound family planning. And making sure also there's a, sometimes a gap between your will. Sometimes people will think if I, if I've done my will that I'm done. But your accounts, there's a lot of accounts that pass by beneficiary designation, so mm-hmm. IRAs, 401Ks, life insurance, annuities, a lot of those types of accounts, they will pass by those designations, and they control over your will. So it's really important to make sure those are done correctly, um, especially if you have minor kids. You don't want your minor kids listed as outright beneficiaries of those things. So a lot of those um, seemingly simple things, it's important to make sure that somebody's looking over your shoulder to make sure they're done correctly.
4: Mm-hmm. Right. right. Well, we talked about then um, um, having assets flow the way that you want. That's one element of estate planning. Uh, Minimizing taxes is one other element of estate planning. What else is out there in regards to estate planning? What about things like adorable power fraternities and uh, advanced medical directives and that sort of thing?
0: Sure. Those are really important things. So durable powers of attorney, there are two types. One is to manage your finances. The other is to manage your health care. And those are effective while you're living. They're really lifetime planning documents. Okay. And when you die, they become null and void. And that's when your will kicks in. So your financial power of attorney is your document that designates who you want to make financial decisions for you if you can't do so yourself during your life. Mm-hmm. And your healthcare power of attorney designates who you want to make healthcare decisions for you if you can't during your life. So if you, who, whether you're going to have surgery, whether you need certain medication, new doctors, pull the plug. Then your healthcare directive is what designates your intentions. If you're in a terminal or permanent unconscious position. Basically, you're in a coma. Doctors say you're not going to make it. Do you want to have artificial nutrition and hydration or not? And you put down your choice on this form, but really it's up to the, the person you designate in your power of attorney to make that call. So it's really important you have lifetime discussions with the people you designate your, your spouse or your kids or whomever it may be of what you want to happen. Um, in my experience, those healthcare directives or living wills, are more of a fail-safe for the people who actually have to make that hard decision to pull the plug. Okay. They just want to know they're doing what you wanted.
4: I see. So it's a more that's more of a, a document where you'd express, hey, this is how, if I'm in a coma, this is how I want it to be handled. And then the, that, so the person who you designate the authority to basically can follow the instructions provided.
0: Yes, and you hope that they do, but they don't really have to.
4: Right, right. Okay.
3: Well, Sarah, what, what other things should... Uh, most? A lot of people don't have an estate plan. It's just... I've met with, um, even high net worth people. And I think what we're touching on here are things that go beyond avoiding taxes. It's the reason to have an estate plan. If you have any assets at all, making sure, right, that they go where you want, but also how decisions will be made, um, if you become incapacitated or incapable. But what, what, what other things are there? Um, what other reasons should, should anyone have an estate plan?
0: I think it's really important, especially for people who are getting older, to educate their kids, if you have children, about how you want your assets to pass. And a lot of parents are cautious about talking about their finances with their children for many reasons. Sometimes it's because they don't want to give up control or they're scared about getting old and sick or dying themselves. Um, and sometimes it's because they want their kids to stand on their own two feet and they don't want their kids to know how much the kids may stand to inherit because they think it may impact their lives. Which it probably will impact their lives. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is, is that the families who are more open with their children, their adult ch- children about their finances and their estate plans and how they want things to pass, those children inherit the money much smarter and calmer and manage it better, in my experience, than the kids who have no idea what's coming and are hit with a will cold when mom and dad die. It's hard enough to lose your parents. Um, it's even harder to have no idea what kind of money they had and what assets they have and what to do with it and administratively it's just a bigger burden on them Um, where I think the parents have the opposite approach they don't want to be a burden
3: okay well I think we're going to take a quick break I do have a couple more questions sir if you could stick around sure Um, when we get back from the break and then we'll move on to some some investment topics we'll be right back (laughs)
2: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
5: Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor, or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, portfolio manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS dot com.
2: You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com.
4: Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio, your host, Ethan Broga. Alongside Ken Smith and our special guest uh, Sarah Bowman from uh, K L Gates, uh, estate planning attorney extraordinaire, I understand. Uh, thanks again for joining us today.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
4: Um, a couple more questions, I think we'll kind of wrap things up here. But one of the, I'd like to get your take on this. Uh, what are some of the most common avoidable types of estate planning mistakes that you see in your practice?
0: I think the number one common mistake is not having a will or not having estate planning documents in place, all encompassing being your durable power of attorney. I um, see it all the time where a child will call me up and say, Mom or Dad's in the hospital. They're really sick. We need to make sure the mortgage is paid. We need to decide if there's surgery. They're going to have surgery. What do I do? And we can't tell them anything because, you know, the parents didn't have things in place. So it's if you get to that point uh, where you can't make decisions for yourself, you're stuck because then you can't do anything. And then you end up, the kids end up getting into really, or a spouse ends up getting into really expensive guardianship court proceedings. Or the assets end up passing where you don't want it to I see, I see.
4: Any other types of mistakes that you see? Let's say you have a will in place. What are, other, what are things beyond that that happen in, that in your, your practice you've, you've, you've seen?
0: Not telling people you have a will in place <laughs> or, or hiding that will in some very strange place. Um, <laughs> a, a big mistake, actually, that we come across quite a bit, especially for the older generations, are putting your original will in a safe deposit box hmm. and locking it up and not having anybody else on the name for the safe deposit box. Then you get into a chicken and egg situation where in order to have access to the safe deposit box, the survivor needs that original will that's inside of it to go to court to get the authority to come back to get inside it. And so it it becomes complicated to get a court order to be able to get in there and get that will.
4: I see.
3: Today, are people storing these documents electronically more than ever, or is it still paper?
0: You need a paper original inked document will when you die your family okay. does so that original powers of attorney not so important the original will super important in my firm at cano gates we have a fireproof locked vault that we keep all original estate planning documents free of charge forever if somebody wants we have oh, documents great. that are decades old and it's just a nice place because it's hmm. easier someone hmm. can email me at 10 o'clock on saturday night if something happens and we can get access to it
4: oh, that's great Ken, do you have any, uh, any last questions for Sarah? Yeah, a couple questions with
3: regard to the process of working with you and your firm. And also, uh, I thought maybe you could share a little bit about how somebody outside of our market might approach picking, uh, sound estate planning guidance and maybe throw into that a little analysis about using online tools to do that. There are some, uh, online legal, uh, that can people that are advertising just up on and for a couple hundred bucks do your get your estate plan done and is that a viable option?
0: Sure, no, I think it's a really great question. Um, in my experience, the box does not fit everyone and the online options are a little bit scary because the ones that I've actually seen have never actually done what the people thought they would do. and you're not going to know that there's a problem until you're dead and your family has to deal with it. So you're actually never really going to know, I think it's really important, especially for a will and other estate planning documents, to make sure you meet with a live, real estate planning attorney who can do some subjective analysis as to what's important for you personally, because it's different for everybody. And there's tax planning, but there's family planning, and there's different state laws, and there's federal law, and you want to make sure it all works. And a lot of those programs um, don't do everything that you intend for them to do.
4: Okay, is it possible that you have a specific example, like you know, somebody who, who's brought to you, um, uh, maybe um, an online prepared legal document, and, and what was your experience with that?
0: Sure. Yeah, I actually had a client a couple of months ago who had a pretty high net worth estate worth, you know, several million dollars, and he and his wife are fairly young with two minor children, and came in and knew that they wanted to change some things in their estate plan, but gave me this will that he had done on some online program, and they had executed it and whatnot, but it wasn't valid. So it just legally under Washington law was not valid, and they had thought they had guardians in place for their kids and all these things that if they had died, it would not have happened.
4: What, what, what invalidated it, if you can speak to that?
0: It wasn't executed properly, and the form wasn't set up properly. They did everything the form said to do. The form didn't say to do all of the things that were required under Washington law.
4: Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that's a big, big shocker, right?
0: Yeah. So fortunately, they were still alive, and they were in my office, and we were able to fix it. <laughs> right. So no harm, no foul. But there's a lot of people out there where, unfortunately, there may be hiccups down the road that they're not aware of. Excellent.
3: Okay. Well, Sarah, why don't you tell us a little bit about your process, um, particularly for our local listeners and clients and uh, partners, if they were going to contact you? What? How do you work? How do you? What documents should they be prepared to bring? And and um, Maybe about your information. If there's any uh, websites or, or literature that you would have them read,
0: sure. As
5: well.
0: Thank you. It's a great question. So my law firm is KNL Gates, and I work with folks uh, mostly here locally in Washington, but we do have offices around the country and around the world. So we're able to work with folks on estate planning matters uh, near and far. Uh, my website is www.klGates.com. And my email is Sarah, with an H, S-A-R-A-H, dot Bowman, B-O-W-M-A-N, at klgates.com. My contact info is on my website as well. Um, I work with clients primarily on estate planning and then post-death trust and estate administration matters. And really it's a matter of just sitting down with a client and talking about what their issue is, what they want to do, what's their family dynamic, and really getting into a lot of the details and building a relationship to move forward from there. Um, on a planning side, we usually start with a basic do a will, powers of attorney, living will, and put the context in that they want, and then build from there. There are a lot of other unique strategies to use, but that, those are some basics that everybody should start with.
3: Okay, great. Well, if there's nothing else you have to share, sir, we'll, uh, we really appreciate you coming in today and uh, the work you've been doing with our clients. We really appreciate the help and uh, the guidance that you've provided us on an ongoing basis. So we would certainly endorse and recommend that if you're out there and uh, you don't have an attorney that you're working with, a competent estate planning attorney, give Sarah a call or get in touch with us and we'll get you connected with her.
0: Perfect. Thank you for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks a a lot.
4: Thanks for coming. All right, Ken, I think uh, we have about... uh, Thank you you very much. (laughs) We have about seven minutes, I think, for this this segment, and then we have more to finish up today. Where should we take our conversation next?
3: Well, you know, Ethan, I I thought uh, we switched gears into an investment, uh, some investment topics, you know, like a little mix here, a little sandwich, some financial planning, and we go into an an investment. Um, And I do think, in conclusion, and Sarah's left here, that it is a very important thing that uh, I, I, I think... The nature of the topic a lot of times deals with our mortality that we aren't excited as individuals to address estate planning.
5: Mm-hmm. And
3: then the other common uh response to it is the cost it may be a deterrent. And uh, I think that's something if you call us or talk to us about it, um, you know, if you have a very simple situation, certainly we could give you some guidance in how you could manage those costs and still get sound advice. And I think that was with my question about going online. Um The danger in just doing that without knowing exactly what you're doing or any way of evaluating those documents that are being generated uh, would be that you're paying even a small amount but not getting what you want. So it's not great to pay anything to get something that doesn't work. Um, And I'm not saying that those things don't work. I'm just saying that it may not be – you may not wind up with something, as Sarah pointed out, that is – properly executed or as effective as you might be. So there might be some other ways to get you in front of someone, and we'd love to share ideas with you about that. And certainly if you're in a more complicated uh, situation with several million um, dollars, I don't know why you would take the chance to save a few hundred dollars um, to do it yourself rather than even the convenience of it. It still would be worth investing a little bit of time and Connecting with your financial advisor and getting a reference to get someone who knows what they're doing and who isn't going to take advantage of you by any means. Right. So, just wanted to come on that. Well, Ethan, um, with the time we have, I was forwarded um, a uh, a clip that um, that uh, deals with an, an interview with John Bogle, who was the founder of Vanguard, and talking about investment costs. So we got about four minutes, so I'm going to play a little portion of this. And the idea here is I want to make a point about how you evaluate this this cost issue when it comes to investing. Um, and so this was on uh,
6: the Yahoo Finance. Retirement crisis ...because people aren't saving enough. But even those who do save for retirement can lose large sums because of fees that money managers charge. Here's what Martin Smith, correspondent and writer of a Frontline Report that airs tonight, learned from John Bogle, founder of Vanguard.
1: Bogle gave me an example. Assume you're invested in a fund that is earning a gross annual return of 7%. They charge you a 2% annual fee. Over 50 years, the difference between your net of 5%, the red line, and what you would have made without fees, the green line, is staggering. Bogle says you've lost almost two-thirds of what you would have had.
6: Martin joins me now. So, Martin, uh, the piece is called The Retirement Gamble. Um, and you talk about your own experience with your own retirement. Before we get to that, I'm curious, can you put some perspective on how, how big is the retirement crisis in America today?
1: Well, we have a whole cohort of baby boomers about to, or some already retiring or trying to retire. We have many more coming down the pike. And people haven't saved enough. The statistics are that one um, quarter uh, of Americans haven't saved anything at all, and another half, or I think it's one-third haven't saved anything at all, and one-half. Say they don't have enough money to save, and right. this isn't something you can put off until you're 50 or 60. You got to start thinking about it really when you hit the workforce, and that's really hard for people to do.
6: Right. I heard a stat that half of people with a 401k have less than ten thousand dollars in that yeah. 401k. The, the, yeah, and which is not nearly enough to get you. No, and it, Social Security is not going to get you there. And if your daddy's not rich, uh, you're in trouble. Yeah, big trouble. Right. So yeah. r- as we saw in that in that clip, there, there's a big issue in the fees that you're being charged in your 401k, what, and you discovered this for yourself, but what? How, how big are these fees? How, how significant are they?
1: Well, the average actively managed mutual fund, a mutual fund where there's somebody that really is trying to time the market and figure things out and get a hot hand going, uh, is charging about 1.3 percent a year. It doesn't sound like much, but it easily puts you into six figures over a 40-50 year.
6: Uh, six figures?
1: Six figures of loss, of, you know, Less than you would have had if you weren't paying such a high fee. If you buy a index fund, you can pay ten times less than that. Uh, and interestingly, for all the effort that goes into actively managed funds, year after year, bull and bear markets, the index funds beat the uh, the overwhelming majority beat the uh, actively managed funds. So right.
6: why are we doing
1: this? You right. Would ask. It's both
6: Rachel. Well, well, so obviously Jack Bogle, he's been you know the champion of index funds, and again the academic research.
3: Ethan, I want to stop there real quick because we're going to have to take a break here. Okay. Um, when we come back from our break, though, I want to start to dissect what was just discussed okay. and talk about, again, this idea of fees and investing and how that affects your your overall end ending value of net worth. When we get back, thanks. Uh, we'll be right back.
2: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
5: Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, portfolio manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot
2: From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at EMPIRadio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan.
4: All right, we're back uh, at Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. Thanks for joining us today. This is the last segment of our program, about nine minutes. And I think, Ken, right before the break, uh, we were talking about um, listening to uh, a clip that you were playing about discussing mutual fund fees inside 401ks and things. And I know you wanted to elaborate a bit on that.
3: There was just a video on Yahoo Finance, uh, the title of it if you're searching for it, you can listen to the entire, it, the clip in its entirety. It's about six, almost seven minutes long. And it's titled Retirement Gamble, How Fees Are Killing Your Savings. And uh, what was just played was um, the interviewer had interviewed uh, John Bogle, who's famous for founding Vanguard Mutual Funds. And in that interview, Bogle um his report or whatever, he puts a line up, and I see this all the time, and that's why I wanted to bring it up, a line and and this talk about how fees can really kill your return. Um, And so they'll show the difference of um, uh, charging. one. He said 1.3% was the average actively managed mutual Mm fund charging. mm -hmm. And what they usually do is assume that you'll get some stated amount of return, and they'll deduct the fees out of it and say, well, if you didn't pay fees, you'd have a lot more money at the end which to me is kind of an obvious component, but I think the magic of compounding is what they think that uh, most people don't understand that, I guess, and so they get the point of, well, maybe people don't realize that at the end you wind up with two-thirds more if you didn't pay fees. Right. Well, certainly if we walked around in life and never paid fees for anything, we'd have an enormous amount of money at the end, right? If I didn't pay fees to... Yeah, assuming the same return. To, right. Um... But there are fees to get things done correctly. And my argument, or my, where I think there's some negligence in the reporting on this um, by, by uh, the media that puts this out, but also guys like Bogle who write this. Um, and then he, real quick, he goes on to just now say that, well, on top of it all, you're paying 1.3%, and actively managed mutual funds don't outperform index funds. Um, the problem I have with all of this discussion. Is that you, they never actually follow up and say, well, what, it's not that you shouldn't pay to get sound financial advice and have sound financial management. Mm-hmm. It's where you're paying the fee that is the issue. So to pay fees to underperform the stock market, I don't even know that we need to have all those discussions. Everybody should understand that and, or at least have a discussion about that. Why would anyone pay 1.3% to, to underperform the market? A little side note on that is a few weeks back, we had read the study that Bangor gave about picking the right active funds. Um, and it's interesting because he goes on in this clip to talk about how active funds don't add any value. And really, it's the study that Bogle did was really it's there's a correlation between fees and how well they do. But as a group, none of them outperformed the market. So when you engage in traditional active management, really what you're getting at any price is – Likely somewhere around market performance minus their expense. Mm-hmm. So why would you engage, whether it's Vanguard funds or any funds in that game? So my advice to there to take out of all those studies, including what they're putting out, is don't play that game. Get it an, and don't get an advisor that plays that game. Avoid advisors and yourself playing that game. Now it comes to, well, should I, should I pay any fees for anything? Uh, and the Dow Bar study is a study that we've cited over the years that, Has attempted to track what the performance has been on uh, individual investors, you know, managing money at various self-directed brokerage accounts, and what you see is over uh, a 20-year period that they studied, that um, one of the studies, about a 5.3 percent per year underperformance uh, than just investing in the S and P. So at a time. 20-year period ending in 2011, where the S&P did 9.1% a year, the average stock fund, equity fund investor, did about 3.8%, so 5.3% less. And my thing here is that we are missing the big picture when we're talking about these fee comparisons, is whether or not you paid a half a percent or 1% or 10 basis points on a fund, is really highly irrelevant because I can take that same compounding argument that Bogle's using, right, and so you want to you want to play that game let's play that game and the game would be if we looked over the last forty three years and you just invested your money and actually got s p returns which are closer to ten percent mm-hmm. you'd have about six point five million dollars now if you had invested in our um, moderate just kind of middle of the road globally diversified targeted premium portfolio and deducted a 1% management fee out of that, you'd still have about $11 million out of those fees. So significant difference over the S&P. But that's really not even the, the, the debate that should be going on. The debate is, well, what if what is the average investor? If we took that 20-year period and we said, well, there's been a 5.3% deficit that average investors have gotten, over just owning the S&P 500 index. And by the way, in those studies, they're including people who own index funds. Mm-hmm. Owning the index or paying, whether I pay 1% or 1.3, which we never do, by the way. We never buy an actively managed mutual fund that charges that month, but still doesn't negate the point I'm making, which is that the difference between that 1.3 or, one, or even in paying an advisor like Empirical or another, is very small relative to the 5.3% that these investors are losing by managing their investments on their own because you can just as easily move in and out of those index funds sure. at all the wrong time. Even if they're free, it doesn't matter exactly. The index itself can drop fifty percent in any one year right. and if you happen to pull out after it's dropped fifty percent, the mistake you make there is far far greater and in fact if you took that five point three percent deficit or underperformance that the average individual did over the twenty and you applied it to the forty three year period, Instead of only having 11 million in the empirical portfolio or 6.5 million in the S and P, you would have 760 thousand dollars is what the average investor got if they just repeated the track record that we've that the Dowbar guys have found. Wow! Um, so the difference in that is far greater. Uh, then the 1% difference in fees on the the extreme end, if you said, hey, what's a 1% or a 2% difference in fees? But for whatever reason, no one wants to talk about the real issue The real thing that's of concern, and probably because the people putting that data out really have an agenda, whether it's it's the index fund provider or Vanguard, they just want to sell their funds. Mm -hmm. And so it's our job, I guess, Ethan, to clarify that and say, hey, where's the real damage here? The damage isn't whether, and I keep repeating myself, but it's not whether I paid 10 basis points or zero, or a 1% to have a fund, it's the fact that I may be exposing myself to risk where I lose 50 or or 100%. If you own one stock, right, because you can make an argument and say, well, I even buy the index fund and pay 10 basis points when I can just buy one stock and own it forever and pay zero. But well, we know that wouldn't be a great idea because the fee that you pay is the fee that comes in a different, materializes in a different form, which is you are really now in, a, in the speculation world and you could have the catastrophic loss of losing 100% of your investment. So is it worth to reduce the risk of losing 100% or paying it 100% of my investment in fees, that fee called a loss because the company goes under, because the company winds up being an Enron or even uh, one Washington of the, Mutual. Washington Mutual or any other number of technology stocks that sure. went out right. during the, the tech bubble? or any number of stocks throughout the history of the market that go out, a great number of them that completely go out of business, there is a cost. You're just fooling yourself if you don't believe there is one. Um, and so diversification does require some cost, but that cost, in my opinion, is far, far lower than the cost of not diversifi- not diversifying properly. And the cost of not engaging sound financial advice in a fiduciary capacity, meaning that the advisor uh, is not only extremely credentialed and experienced but has to put, legally needs to put your interest at the forefront, the cost of that is far greater than even a 1% management fee on, on the high end that somebody would pay to get that advice. Um, and we just showed how the difference over that 43-year period is uh, close to $5 million, conservatively, wow. could be. And that's just for the simple portfolio. That doesn't account the work that you're doing, like things like on the Roths and the, helping Planning people. side of things. It, it, it's an enormous amount. It's just very hard, I think, for people to see with all the garbage that gets put out there. Sure. I think we got a little bit of time. Do you have anything to add to that?
4: Well, I, I, I think part of the issue <laughs> is that most people think that, um, hey, I'm, I'm getting S&P type of returns. Like I'm getting that return, which is not true. You look at the average return of an investor, and like you said, it's five percent less than the average S&P return. The enormous difference just in that that alone, and it's due be due to primarily investor behavior, which has to do with hey, I'm investing in whatever I'm investing, and in. I still make bad decisions. Right. You need help with that. The mental aspect of investing is just as important as the, the the hey, I'm picking the right types of investments themselves.
3: That's true, Ethan.
4: So that's a good point, Ken.
3: Well, I think we're coming to the end of another great show, Ethan. Indeed. I appreciate you tuning in, and uh, please feel free to give us a call throughout the week if you want to talk about your personal financial situation. There's no pressure or obligation to work with us. We just want to help, particularly if you're listening, a listener to the program. You can call us during the week at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or send me an email, ksmith at empirical, E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L dot net. Thank you, and have a great week. We'll be back next Thursday.
2: hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week.